Great Gildersleeve. Lux <laughs> yeah. presents Hollywood. Now cut that out! <laughs> the big question that seems to be worrying Sonny and Buddy, as well as the rest of our adventurers, is whether Betty will really get the money she has inherited. The only one who could answer the question is the lawyer. And he was last heard from on his way to Mexico City. Tonight we hope to find out if Doc has received an answer to the telegram he sent the lawyer. Oh, gosh, but it's hot, isn't it? Yeah. I wish we could go swimming or fishing, don't you, Sonny? Mm, yeah. I wonder if there's a swimming pool in this town. Well, there's a river. I guess we can go swimming there. Let's ask Dad and the sheriff to go with us. What do you say? I've got a better idea. What? Let's ask Betty to pack a nice lunch and we can all go out on a picnic and a swim. Maybe Betty will go with us. How about it? Oh, boy. I'd like to be somewhere out in the woods under a nice big shady tree and eating a picnic lunch on the riverbank. <laughs> we haven't done that in a long time. There's the sheriff talking to Dad. Let's go and ask him if there's a place around here where we can go swimming. All right. Hey, you see, Doc, I was right. You ain't get nothing from that boy yet. I know he was just trying to crook you. Well, I think it's a little too early to say that, Sheriff. Let's be patient for a little while longer. Well, say, Dad, let's all go swimming somewhere. What do you say? Yeah, I don't know about that, boys. Last time you boys talked me into going swimming, somebody stole my car and all my clothes. And I caught cold, and old true love has all been up yet from being pushed in the ditch. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got your clothes back, and old true love is still running. Yep, but if I hadn't been just about the best sheriff in these here parts, I never would have got her back. I ain't craving to chase no more desperate criminal just to get my pants back. <laughs> well, we'll be more careful this time, Cheryl. Oh, come on, let's go swimming. We're going to ask Betty to pack up a nice picnic lunch and we'll eat dinner in the woods. How does that idea strike you? Eat lunch, eh? Well, now, that does sound tempting. <laughs> I ain't sure about the swimming part, but I'll help you eat the lunch. Well, if you don't want to swim, Sheriff, you can fish while we swim. You know how to fish, don't you? Well, I hope I do, and I've got the best bait in the world, too. I never fail to get a load of fish when I use my bait. What kind of bait do you generally use, Sheriff? I always use chewing tobacco. Chewing tobacco? <laughs> How in the world can you catch a fish with chewing tobacco? Oh, easiest thing in the world, buddy. You just take a chaw of tobacco and put it on your hook and throw it in the water. Then when the fish grabs the tobacco, he dives to the bottom to chew it, and when he rushes to the top of the water to spit, why, you just hit him over the head with a club and throw him in the boat. <laughs> oh, what a nice... Oh, that's a little too fishy. Hey, don't believe it, eh? Oh, sure. We believe every word of it. <laughs> and never will forget the last big fishing trip I took. I had my gun along with me. I was way up in Michigan. You know, in the wild country. Mm -hmm. Well, sir, I was standing by a river when a noise upstream attracted my attention. I looked up, and there was a moose. Well, I was just about to shoot him when I heard a noise downstream. I looked, and there was an elk. Well, I took a step forward to shoot him, and I almost stepped on a big rattlesnake. Well, sir, I pulled the trigger, and the gun exploded. Busted all two pieces. The barrel went upstream and killed the moose. The stock went downstream and killed the elk. The bullet went straight ahead and killed the quail. The ramrod went down the snake's throat and choked him to death. The gun kicked me backwards into the water, and when I crawled out, both my boots was plumb full of fish. <laughs> and it wasn't such a big day's hunting and fishing at that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't tell us any more, Sheriff. 
Come on, let's get ready for our picnic party. What do you say, Dad? May we go? Oh, I don't mind, boys, if you're careful. Well, aren't you going with us, Dad? No, buddy, I think I'd better stay here. I'm still hoping to receive an answer to my telegram I sent the lawyer in Mexico City, telling him that we'd found Betty. Here, yeah, there ain't a bit of use for you to wait here for that. You ain't never going to hear from that lawyer. You might just as well come along with me and the boys and forget all about it. Oh, gee, Dad, I wish you could go swimming with us. Well, I think I'd better stay here. Take Betty with you. She'll enjoy it more than I would, and she needs the outing. Betty, come here a minute. We've got some news that's worth dividing. What is it, buddy? Dad says we can all go on a picnic. Do you want to go? Oh, I'll say I do. When are we going? Just as soon as we pack a lunch and get our fishing poles and bathing suits. All right. I'll start packing the lunch. <laughs> and we'll have Dad with the medicine. Oh, no, boys. You don't have to stop to give a show. Go on and enjoy your picnic. You can give the show when you come back. Well, that's just it, Dad. We want to give the show before we go. Then we can stay as long as we like and we won't have to hurry back. Well, I'll move you down to the telegraph office and see if there's an, any answer to your telegram, Doc. I know it takes no use, but just please you, I'll go. Oh, hi there, fellas. You remember me? I'm Joe Slocum from Picora. Look, Sonny, look who's here. Hello there. What are you doing so far from home? Oh, I just come up here with Paul. <laughs> One of his hogs got sick, and our family doctor was out of town, so we had to bring the old sow to the Lunkin doctor. I'm sure glad I seen you, fellas. <laughs> Oh, say, did you find the little gal you was looking for? We certainly did. She's here with us right now. You'll see her in a few minutes. Well, are you going to give a free vaudeville opera show here tonight? Yes, sir, young man, in just a moment. And as a reward for your help in finding Betty, I'm going to give you a bottle of my tonic and toner. Here you are. Now give that to your hog and just see what happens. Oh, hey, boy. Uh, come over here and see what they give to me. And they're going to put on a free show, too. Did you hear what this young man said, folks? He came all the way from Pecora to get a bottle of my tonic and toner to give to his livestock. That just proves my statement that it's good for man or beast. Yes, sir. Yeah. And it'll cure that crying baby, too, madam. It'll cure that crying baby. And it's only one dollar a bottle. Why, hey, I want to hear some singing. And I want to see that pretty gal, too. <laughs> when is she coming out? In just a moment. But you should have a song right now. And Rastus is the singer. With every breath I take. of you with every breath I take, and every breath becomes a sigh, not a sigh of despair, but a sign that I care for you. I hear your name with every breath I take, on every breeze that wanders by. And your name is a song I remember the long years through. Even though I walk alone, you guide me. In the darkness, you light my way. And all the while inside me, love seems to say, Someday. Long day. 
And when I sleep, you keep my heart awake. But when I wake from dreams divine, every breath that I take is a prayer that I'll make you mine. Hey, rather. Boy, I just got to tell you what Miss Graham said about her experience in the church last Sunday. Yeah, well, what happened to Miss Graham in church? Well, uh, she took her little five-year-old boy with her, and, and they passed around a little plate with some crackers on it and a glass of wine. Mm-hmm, that was communion, sir. Yeah, well, uh, Miss Graham, she, she told her little boy not to take none of the crackers. She said she'd give him some when he got home. <laughs> and then, just as the deacon started to pass the Constitution plate, she gave the little boy a dime to put in the plate. But he didn't do it. So she said, to Willie, how come you didn't put in your dime? And Willie said, well, uh, I didn't eat nothing. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Amble, did you see the machinist dog that Charcoal got? What do you mean, a machinist dog? A fella gives Charcoal a dog what is a machinist. Oh, Raptors, what you talking about? What kind of a dog is a machinist dog? <laughs> you give him a kick and he makes a bolt for the dog. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, Sambo will... Bring a song. Give him a hand. I bring a song, a tender song, to tell you of the burning love within my heart. moonbeam for your hair, and I am here to do my humble part, I bring a song, a tender song, to let you know I love you so, right from the start, dear, to keep forever and a day, for a love a while and a throw away, I bring a song. With my song, I bring my heart. Now, folks, here I come out here with some of Dr. Lee Green's son and daughter. Many of you ladies want to know my two brothers now. Here's up, here's up, I got it, I got it. Look. 
Here comes the sheriff, and he's waving something in the air. Yeah, it looks like a telegram. Here, Doctor, I've got news that's worth dividing. It's here in this here telegram. Where's the telegram from, sheriff? It's from the telegraph office. Oh, no, he means who sent it. Why, the fellow down at the telegraph office sent it to Doc. But you've already opened it, haven't you? Sure I have. I thought it might be something important, and I opened it to make sure. Where's Doc? Oh, he'll be here in just a moment. He's a telegram from Mexico City, Sheriff. Yep, from Mexico City. Then it's from the lawyer. Hey, Dad! Dad, come quick! The sheriff has a telegram from the lawyer. Jump in, T. Hartford. Don't get so excited. Oh, hurry up. You say you have a wire for me, Sheriff? Yep. Now, wait a minute, and I'll read it to you. It says, Your message to H.R. Callahan, undelivered. Party left city. Presence address unknown. Well, what does that telegram mean? It means that lawyer is a fake. He skipped out with Miss Betty's $50,000. Most likely, you'll never hear from him again. How much better everyone would feel if the sheriff would only think before he speaks. And right here we find a very good moral. If you can't say something that will bring happiness, it's always best to keep quiet. The boy or girl who is always saying unkind things is never popular. Let's all hope that the sheriff is mistaken, and that our next adventure will bring some good news of Betty's lawyer. Comic Weekly Man, and I'm here to read the funnies to you, happy boys and honeys. Yes, boys and girls, it's Comic Weekly time, and here I come right into your house to bring a little fun and happiness, right out of the pages of Puck the Comic Weekly, straight into your living room, your friend, the Comic Weekly Man, the jolly Comic Weekly Man. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Well, little Miss Sonny, how are you today? I'm just fine. Look. I've got a new pair of shoes. Oh, isn't that nice? I love the little black bow. Oh, so do I. And it always stays tight, so I don't have to tie it. Oh, that's very convenient. Yes, it is, isn't it? Yes, it is, isn't it? Be careful when you're polishing them, though, so you don't stain that bow. Oh, no, I won't. Uh, But speaking of shoe polish, if two-in-one is shoe polish and three-in-one is oil, what is four-in-one? Hmm, hickory-jickory, that's a tough one. I give up. What is four-in-one? Five. <laughs> That's a good one. You tricked me that time. Now will you please read me the funny... Puck the comic <laughs> weekly? Very well, I will in just a moment. But before I do, let's listen to this nice man. Now, here we go with Puck the Comic Weekly. And on the first page of the first section, hop along, Cassidy. Magic words for the music, please. Very well, my lady. Six guns blazing as he thunders along. Give us music for hop along. Deep in the heart of the Colorado Rockies, a climber carefully picks his way up the sheer face of a lofty mountainside high above the swiftly flowing Arkansas River. As he gains the summit... A man and a dog watch him from behind some rocks. The climber scrambles over the edge and then stands up. 
He wears a pack. On it is stamped the letters Frontier Telegraph Company. He straightens up and sees the mountaineer, who's carrying a gun facing him. Last picture, second row. The mountaineer says, We ain't been waiting for you. You and your outfit was warned to clear out of this country. The telegraph man replies, Well, this is a free land, isn't it? First picture next row, the mountaineer answers, Yep. Free snoopers with newfangled notions of setting up towns and bringing in railroads and telegraph. Us mountain folks aim to keep things our way. Any objections? Well, the law might have some. Yeah, this gun is the law here. Reckon it's time to start enforcing it. He pulls up his gun to shoot. The telegraph man leaps at him. The mountaineer yells, Get him, Frank! Last picture, fourth row. The dog, with a savage snarl, hurls himself forward. For a moment, the telegraph man teeters on the brink of the cliff and slips and falls backward into the river 100 feet below. First picture, bottom row. The mountaineer looks down into the river and says, Yeah, we're rid of him, Frank. That river will beat him to pieces in no time. Meanwhile, to the south, an approaching horseman rides upstream on the very river the telegraph man had fallen into. A close look at the horseman tells us it's Hopalong Cassidy. Cassidy, how happy we'll ride up the river and he'll find the man in it and he'll save his life and then the, the telegraph man will tell him what the mountaineer and the dog did and he'll take him down to jail and he'll say, Sheriff, here's your man. Mm, something tells me it won't be as easy as that. Hoppy has a real job ahead of him. Oh, I certainly won't miss that. I won't either. Oh, now I'll bet you it's time for Prince Valiant. Well, I'll bet you we're going to turn over the page and find out. Yes, sir, there he is on page three. And do you remember last week, the ship that Prince Val and Arf were on had landed at Britain, and that's where Arf is to leave the ship. Yes, and you remember that Arf is very unhappy about this, because it looks as though he's going to have to part with the beautiful girl Adele, whom he has fallen in love with. Yes, that's so sad. You, oh, but do you remember that the crew was going to give him a present, too? So let's read and see what that present is. Very well, here we go with Prince Valiant and the days of King Arthur. Eckert, Breckett, Gray, Malkin, and Quince. Music romantic for a fair, fair prince. Their ship reaches Britain, but the time of parting is not yet, for the crew gather around Arf, and the helmsman speaks. The crewmen have a gift for the singer songs who made the lonely hours of the night watch seem short. The teller of tales who helped us forget the winter winds. They tell Arf to stand still, and they hold out a wooden leg, which is to fit onto the stump of the leg which Arf had lost. Last picture, top row, they adjust the straps of the carved and polished wooden leg. Arf stands for a minute, testing, and then, with a shout of joy, throws away the crutch and does a dance step. Hey, look, Val! Look! Then, first picture, next row, Prince Valiant and his squire step ashore. Arf cries, I'm free once more to set foot on Britain, for the days of my banishment are long past. Val smiles happily to see that Arf manages so well with a wooden leg. And then they see Adele and her party go ashore. Arf's not happy to part from Adele, so he says to them, Will you journey to Bristol and we to Camelot? My father's house is midway between. Will you be my guest, please? Adele looks at her father. He looks at her and sees the pleading in her eyes. And he agrees. (laughs) 
the last picture's second row, though winter sends chill winds and rain, springtime rides with two of the party. Arf and the lovely Adele ride side by side through the rain. And first picture, bottom row, after two years of wandering, Arf comes again to the home of his childhood, a home from which he had been driven by an evil woman. Inside the castle, alone in his great library, sits a scholar, Sir Geoffrey, Arf's father, dreaming. Then comes the clatter of hoofs and the sound of voices from the courtyard. Then footsteps are heard walking past the window outside. The door is opened. There are more footsteps down the corridor outside his door. And then, a moment later, a tall lad stands in the doorway. There's a long silence. Sir Geoffrey's eyes grow misty. He looks at Arf and then whispers, My son. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Sir Geoffrey's so happy to see Arf. And Arf's happy to see his father, too. Yes, and isn't it nice that Arf can go home that way and visit and bring that pretty Adele with him? Yes, everything is nice today, isn't it? Yes, it is. And next week we'll find out more about Arf's visit at his home. Oh, great. Now I think it's time for your little pal Donald Duck. Oh, quick, quick, let's quack, quack. Very well, then over the page we go, past Jungle Jim... Turn the page, and there, under little iodine, is Donald Duck. Say the magic words with me. Squeeze them, squeeze them, squeeze it, chicka jack. Let's have music to fit a quack quack. Donald is downtown shopping, and he sees a set of metal chairs and tables for his patio, and he exclaims, Boy, that's a bargain. And by the time you can say it is, Donald is hauling the chairs home, saying cheerfully, Wow, what a scorcher. It must be a hundred in the shade. Third picture, top row, he's setting the chairs up on his patio. And a minute later, he's on the phone saying to Daisy, Ah, Daisy, I finally got some new patio furniture. Come over and see it. Daisy replies, Oh, it's too hot to go out. Donald answers, last picture top row. I'll serve you a nice cold glass of lemonade. Daisy replies, Oh, very well. I'll be over right after lunch. A couple of hours later, first picture bottom row, Donald and Daisy are coming out of the house carrying lemonade. Donald points out the chairs, one which is in the shade of the tree and one which is out in the scorching sun, and he says, Well, how do you like them? Daisy replies, Well, they are pretty, but are they comfortable? Donald says happily as he puts the lemonade on the table. Cry well. Daisy says cheerfully, I'll do that. She backs up to the metal chair, which has been standing in the scorching sun, and sits down. <laughs> up in the air she goes, her bottom sizzling. She picks up a pitcher of lemonade and slaps it on Donald's head. And then walks angrily home with a singed tail. Last picture, Donald with a black eye is at the store again. And he's saying to the storekeeper, You got some asbestos seat cushions, pal? (laughs) 
I would never sit down on a metal chair that had been standing in the sun because that's like sitting on a stove. <laughs> yes, it certainly is. As a matter of fact, I'd put a heat-proof cushion on it right away. <laughs> so would I. Oh, that Donald, he's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, now let's see what Flash Gordon's doing. Oh, yes, let's. Turn to the very last page of the first section, and here he is. You remember, last week, Flash and Dale got into a fight with the Martians on the ship where they were being held prisoners. Yes, and then the Martians began to drain the air out of their ship. But Flash orders Dale and Ginger to put on their space helmets so they can breathe. Yes, I wonder if they got them on in time, because if they didn't, they will die. Well, let's read now and find out. Here we go with Flash Gordon. riga riga doon doon sash Let's have music for Heroic Flash. <laughs> Realizing the Martians are draining the air from their pirate ship, Flash orders Dale and Ginger to don their space helmets. As he opens the plastic exit tube, he directs, All together, jump! Holding on to both of the girls, Flash says, Now hold fast. This one-man rocket drive has to propel all three of us to a space island. He sets the rocket exhaust for fast pickup, hoping to overtake the distant Earth ship. From the invisible Martian pirate ship, last picture top row, a cosmic cannon fires at the fleeing prisoners. Drawing his ray gun, Flash says, I fell short. Underestimated our speed. Well, I'll try to spoil their aim. First picture bottom roll, Flash's ray blast scores a lucky hit on the electro screen that kept the Martian ship invisible to sight and radar. He says, eh, that may scare them. They don't know what secret weapons we can use now that their ship is visible. As the Martian ship edges away, Flash radios the Earth ship, saying, Calling Dr. Ruff on space platform. Open the airlock for us, but have weapons ready. There's a spy for Mars on deck. What Flash doesn't know is that pirate Captain Toxo, the Martian, grins as he hears this. For last picture, hiding on the space platform, he aims his space gun at Flash as Flash moves closer. is going to shoot Flash before he gets there. Yeah, it looks as though that's what he's trying. Oh, and just when I thought Flash was going to get away all right. Oh, it seems that the danger never lets up with Flash Gordon. Well, we'll find out if he makes it all right next week. Oh, I hope so. Oh, now it's time for Dad Good and Bondy. And here they are on the first page of the second section, and I'll read that in just a moment. But first, here's that nice man again with something interesting to say. <laughs> Now, here we go again with Puck the Comic Weekly. And on the first page of the second section, Dagwood and Blondie. Magic words for the music, please. Very well, my lady. Ramafoo, ramafum, zim, zim, zombie. Conjure me music for Dagwood and Blondie. Blondie is telling Tootsie Woodley, her neighbor, that Dagwood says she can't have a new evening gown for the dance. So she has to make her old one over. Tootsie tells her that she'll help her. Tootsie picks up the gown saying... I'll take it home and lower the ham on my sewing machine. Last picture, top row, Dagwood is watering the lawn. Herb Woodley sits in a sun chair reading a magazine. Tootsie sticks her head out of the window and says, Herbert, come in a minute. I need you. First picture, next row, Herb is inside the house with Blondie's dress on as Tootsie's putting pins in it to get it just the right shape. She says, Stop wiggling, Herbert. Herb exclaims, Ouch! I'm no human pincushion. Tootsie looks at the gown thoughtfully and then says, Hmm, now don't move. I have to run over to Blondie's a minute to see if she has some matching ribbon. 
Herb growls, Make it snappy. <laughs> a few seconds later, Dagwood happens to stick his head in through the window. He sees Herb standing there, last picture, second row, with a dress on and one hand on his hip. Dagwood says cutely, Oh, hello, Genevieve. Herb goes, <laughs> Genevieve. Dagwood picks up a flower, and he hands it to Herb, first picture, next row, saying, Don't you want this pretty flower to put in your hair? Herb snarls, That does it! Starts out the window after Dagwood, still wearing the dress. Dagwood aims the garden hose at Herb. And the fight begins. Are you Last picture, third row, Cookie, Dagwood's daughter, runs into the house and yells, Mama, come quick! Papa's beating up a woman! They all dash out to where the boys are fighting. And they find Herb and Dagwood, first picture, bottom row, lying on the ground in a puddle of water. Herb's all covered with bruises, and Dagwood is lying there with a garden hose wound around his neck. Blondie wails, Oh, my evening gown, it's ruined! Dagwood exclaims, your evening ground. Boom! An hour later, Dagwood and Blondie are downtown at the store. Blondie has on a beautiful new evening gown. The sales lady says, Oh, it's only $39.50. Dagwood, chewing his fingernails, moans, Oh, only, she says. Blondie exclaims, I'll take it. Last picture. Dagwood slowly comes up the walk. Blondie stops on the doorstep and calls to Tootsie and Herb. Oh, look, Tootsie. I got a new evening gown, thanks to you and Herb. And Dagwood slinks into the house. Oh, poor Dagwood. Well, why do you say poor Dagwood? After all, it was he who started all the whole trouble. Oh, yes, but... He called her Woodley a Genevieve. Yes, but... And he squirted the water hose on the desk. Yes, but... And that's what started the whole fight. Yes, but... And I think Blondie deserved a new evening gown anyway. All right, we won't read Roy Rogers. Why? Because you won't let me say yes, but... Yes, but... Well? Please read Roy Rogers. Pretty please. With sugar on it? Go ahead. Say yes, but. Yes, but now I don't have anything to say yes, but about. Well, then read Roy Rogers. Very well, then. I will read Roy Rogers. Thank you. You remember last week, Roy started a new adventure. He's after some outlaws who stole some gold. Yes, and when we left them, the outlaws, Beetle and Ballast, are at the foot of Flat Top Butte, a high, steep rock in the valley. They have the gold with them. Ballast has taken a huge kite out of his covered wagon, and he tells Beetle to climb into the kite because there's no way to the top of the rock except by flying. And it's a good place to hide the box of gold dust that they've stolen from the bank. I wonder if you'll get up there all right. Well, let's read now and find out. Here we go with Roy Rogers, King of the Cowboys. A yip by yo Now here we go with Roy and Trigger. A yip by <laughs> Beetle, who is a small man, climbs into the kite. Then Ballast turns it into the wind, which begins to lift it up. Ballast releases the rope from a winch. As the kite goes up, 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 third picture, top row, carrying Beetle to the top of the rock. It hits the rock with a bump, and Beetle, hanging on for dear life, exclaims, Hey, I'm sure earning my split of this gold shipment. Ballast yells, Hey, jump, Beetle! Maybe 
see Roy Rogers across the valley. Needle lets go and drops to the top of the rock. He ties a rope and pulley around the cleft in the rock and looks off down the valley. Last picture top row, he calls down to ballast. Hey, it looks like Rogers is catching up to jutting the stage. The local transportation expert ain't far behind. First picture about a row as Roy gains on the stagecoach and the escaping outlaw. Roy says, I could pick Chuck Matheson off that stage trigger, but we want him alive. Wonder what happened to his sidekick. Roy rides up on the outside of the stagecoach. When Judd sees him, he prepares to jump. Roy yells, Go ahead and jump, Matheson. The goal's the important thing right now. Judd jumps off as Roy rides up and catches the reins of the lead horse and tries to stop the coach. Judd rolls over in the ground, gets up and hides behind a bush, third picture bottom row. He sees Q. Brute, who's been tagging along behind Roy, coming along behind on the light buckboard. As he nears him, Judd puts a shot through Cube's hat. You bring in his rig and says, Judd Matheson, you ruckin, I'll have you jailed for robbery for this high-handed... Shut up. I'll aim closer, Root. I want your nag and that buckboard pronto. Oh, he's going to take Cube's horse and buggy and get away, isn't he? It certainly looks like it. I guess Roy didn't count on that. No. And just think, Beetle is up on the top of the rock now, and he can pull the gold up there and then hide it. Yes, Roy is really going to have some puzzle to work this out. Mm-hmm, it looks that way. Well, we'll find out more about that next week. Is now the time for Dick's adventure? It is now, and you'll find him on the very last page of the second section. I'm glad, because you remember last week, Dick was dreaming that he was in the early days of America with George Washington, and there's going to be a big battle. Yes, between the English Army under General Cornwallis and the American Army under George Washington at Yorktown, Virginia. So let's read about it. Very well, here we go with Dick's adventures. Say the magic words with me. Riggedy pack, kazak, kazik. Let's have music for adventurous Dick. Dick, astride his horse, looks at the enemy soldiers who are now encircled by the Americans on land and watches the French fleet which is coming into the bay to attack the British from the sea. Dick says. Cornwallis and his redcoats are dead ducks. We got them trapped here in Yorktown, Virginia, and it's the last big battle of the Revolution. But Dick's optimism is premature. For despite the fact that Washington has Cornwallis surrounded and a powerful French fleet is shelling him from the Chesapeake, the doughty British general suddenly counterattacks with fury, last picture, top row, and this is with exceeding difficulty thrown back. All day long, the battle continues. Then, second picture next row, near dusk, Dick sees the masts of British warships racing toward Yorktown to relieve the beleaguered redcoats. And the big picture, center of the page, the French fleet turns to head them off. And that night, the sky over the Chesapeake is aflame with burning English ships. Relentlessly, over the hours, the redcoats are pressed into a smaller and smaller space. At last, only two redoubts remain to them. But no infantry can storm past this murderous crossfire. All night long, the opposing armies face each other over a short distance of open ground. The British are dug in well, but it seems that in no way can anyone get at them. But at length, first and second pictures, bottom row, to end this fearsome siege, Colonel Alexander Hamilton and General Lafayette gain Washington's consent to a bold maneuver. 
In the first gray light of dawn, two companies of lightly armed cavalry wait for a signal. Attack! And it comes. Last picture, Dick and his comrades are charging wildly past the redoubts and into the heart of Yorktown. Dick cries, This time it's got to fall! Yes, right at the British guns. My, those are brave men. I wonder if this will win the victory. Well, next week we'll find out for sure. Oh, I can hardly wait. Neither can I. Oh, look, here's Rusty Rally right underneath Dick's attention. Yes, and you remember last week Tex and Rusty went to see a man named Old Sam at the racing track at Lexington, Kentucky, to see if they could learn something about Snowflake, the horse the little girl Queenie had. Yes, that was because Tex had learned that Snowflake was a trotting horse that pulled a little cart and not a race horse that wore a saddle. That's right, and you remember that when Tex described Snowflake to Old Sam, he remembered a horse just like that, called Rhina Blanca. Yes. Let's read more and see if we can find out for sure if it's the same horse. Very well. Here we go with Rusty Riley. Gallop and run till the road is dusty. Give us music for his horse and Rusty. <laughs> Tex leans forward eagerly and says to old Sam... You say the white mare you're thinking of was named Rhina Blanca, huh? Well, that's Spanish for white queen, ain't it? Uh, what's her owner supposed to have done to get him ruled off the track, Sam? Old Sam replies, Well, it happened right on the track. About the only serious competition the white mare had was a brown standard bred named Poobah, driven by Corny Botts. Poobah and Rhina Blanca were leading the field at the far turn, neck and neck. When the left fork of Corny Butt Sulky broke, he was hurt so bad he hasn't driven since. The association officials got an anonymous tip that Catfoot Kendall, the little owner and driver of the white mare, tampered with Corny Sulky. Here, come with me a minute, and I'll show you. So he leads Tex and Rusty over to a pile of junk by one of the sheds. Last picture top row, he picks up a fork, which is a part of the Sulky, the part that was broken, and he says... Here's the very fork, Tex. It's been laying on this junk heap for months. Now, if you look close, you see the break shows that it was sawed about half through. You see? Tex replies, By cracky, you're right. You say the officials were tipped off? First picture, bottom row, old Sam replies, Yep. Somebody wrote him a letter suggesting they look into Catfoot Candle's kickbox. Sure enough. He found a hacksaw with fresh steel filings in the teeth. Hmm, that's pretty strong evidence, but it ain't positive proof. Uh, what did Kendall say? Oh, Catford swore he didn't even own a hacksaw. But another witness said he heard him say that he'd take care of Corny Botts. So they ruled him off all association tracks forever. And just same I say, I don't believe he did it. Tex nods his head thoughtfully and then says, I see. Well, thanks, Sam. Uh, just a couple more questions. Who was Botts driving for, and how did Kendall get that nickname, Catfoot? Oh, Corny Botts drove for Grassy Acre Stables. As for Kendall, he got that moniker Catfoot because he always wore real soft shoes, like moccasins. Uh-huh, I see. Well, thanks again, Sam. I'll be seeing you. Tex and Rusty walk over to the car. Last picture. Rusty says, He doesn't seem like Snowflake can be the horse Sam was talking about. Tex goes, her driver was Catfoot Kendall, but Queenie's name is Jones. Tex says, well, I don't know, Rusty. 
Drivers sometimes take a professional name. Uh, take a walk over to his shack and have a look at his shoes. Oh, this is exciting. Tex is certainly learning a lot of interesting things. You know, he's just like my favorite detective, Nick Carter. Yes, he is. And I hope that these facts that he's learned will help him prove that Queenie's father wasn't the one who sawed that fork. Yes, so do I. Because if Tex can prove that it wasn't Queenie's father, why, why then he can run his horse in the race again, and then maybe they can win the money and live happily ever after. Well, we'll find out more about that next week. Now, that's all the time I have. But before I go, here's that nice fellow with some more interesting information. Well, honey, and all you boys and girls, I gotta go now. All right, Mr. Tony Wiggly Man, but I'll be waiting for you next week. Okay, that's a date, and a date with all you boys and girls. Be sure to meet me with our little friend, Miss Honey, next week when I read Puff the Comic Weekly. For I'm the Comic Weekly Man, the jolly Comic Weekly Man. I'll be back to read the funnies to you happy boys and honeys. Don't forget, boys and girls, see you all next week. Your friend, the Comic Weekly Man. The Jolly Comic Weekly Man. of Sam Spade, Detective. Brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic, the non-alcoholic hair tonic that contains lanolin. Wild Root Cream Oil, again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. Sam Spade, Detective Agent. It's only me from over the sea. Did you go in? Well, I was up to my neck from the first rumble. If you mean did I go in the water, I did. Did you cold? I didn't notice. I was too busy landing a corpse. Oh, oh Sam, what a coincidence. Hmm? I was just reading my new library book. Yeah. And it's all about a body in the water pushed over a cliff. Hmm? And there's the strangest girl in it with a, with a strange mother. And she drinks, the girl, and runs away with a chauffeur. That rich people. They can't do that. They're stealing my material. Oh, no, Sam, no. It's by Owen Fitzstephen. He's very well thought of. Mother always understands his plot. Not tonight, she won't. Stay where you are, Angel. I'll be right down to dictate my report on the critical author caper. Dashiell Hammett, America's leading detective fiction writer and creator of Sam Spade, the hard-boiled private eye, and William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, join their talents to make your hair stand on end with the adventures of Sam Spade. Presented by the makers of Wild Root Cream Oil for the hair. You know as well as I do, fellas, your hair is one of the first things any gal notices. So it's really important to keep your hair spruced up right all the time. 
The answer? Why, of course. Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic. Wild Root Cream Oil grooms your hair neatly and naturally, relieves dryness, and removes loose, ugly dandruff. I have a hunch, fellas. She'll help herself to another look if you're using Wild Root. Get Wild Root Cream Oil Hair Tonic in bottles or the handy new tube. It's again and again the choice of men who put good grooming first. Later in this program, we'll have an important announcement. Listen for it. And now, with Howard Duff starring as Spade, Wild Root brings to the air the greatest private detective of them all in the adventures of Sam Spade. Over. Oh. oh, Sam. Now, yeah, come on in. Let's get this over. Anyway, will I finish this chapter? Hmm? A page to go. The detective had just found this girl in a sordid rooming house. Mm-hmm. He had this fight with her boyfriend and boinged him. Boinged him. And now butter wouldn't melt in her mouth. But I don't trust her. What's the name of the boy? Morg Fruit. Morg His last was a spindly stiff. Mm-hmm. That was about this neurotic nurse who was in love with her employer. Effie, how long have you been reading this kind of trash? What's well, not trash, Sam? Well, you mean he makes his characters live. Mm. And I love his detective. He's real hard-boiled like a ha- uh, Dashiell Hammett. Dashiell Hammett? <laughs> Mark your place and come in. All right, sir. <laughs> oh, dear, dear. Uh, ready? Yes, Sam. Oh, I can hardly wait. Ah, that's the way I like you, eager. To finish the chapter, I mean. Please. I wonder what she's up to. She's guilty, of course. Of course, but what up? You can read it when I'm finished. Oh, my goodness, we've got a report to get out, and here we are chattering about books. <laughs> Date, August? I will give the date. Yes, Sam. Uh, date? Philadelphia. To uh, Missing Persons Bureau, San Francisco Police. Attention, Sergeant Schwartz from Samuel Spade, license number 17596. Subject, Gabriel Leggett. Dear Dave, I uh, should have handed it over to you at the start, but you know me, I'm greedy. I cashed the check she'd sent me as a retainer without consulting my better judgment. Gave the money to Effie to pay bills without batting an eye. Borrowed a dime car fare from the corner newsboy without collateral. And arrived in front of the Leggett Mansion on Knob Hill without the foggiest notion of what I had been retained for. I'm Gertrude Leggett, Mr. Spade. It's about my stepdaughter, Gabrielle. She's been missing since the funeral. Uh, Whose funeral was that, Mrs. Leggett? My husband, Gabrielle's father. That was nearly three weeks ago. She came to me afterwards and said she was going down to Quesada to our country place for a few days. That she wanted to be alone with her grief. But I discovered that she never arrived at Quesada. Do I make myself clear, Mr. Spade? Yeah, except for one thing. Why do you want her back? First, she may do something to disgrace me. She'll undoubtedly try her best to do so. Secondly, unless I get her signature to some papers, in accordance with her father's will, I can't go on living in this house. Furthermore... That's okay. You've convinced me. Now, when she left, what did she take with her? Just one piece of light luggage and her liquor case, of course. She drinks, you know. Well, it's not my place to disapprove. I merely thought it might help you to know. Well, we could case all the bars in town, but it'd take a lot of time and a lot of money. Besides, I'm on the wagon. Well, you might talk to Eric, my chauffeur. He drove her to the station, or says he did. Where do I find him? Let's see. Ten o'clock. He'll be loitering down the hall somewhere in the neighborhood of the linen closet. Helping the upstairs maid fold the sheets. Uh, I'd knock first if I were you and avoid embarrassment. Thanks for the tip. Oh, uh, mind if I have a look at your stepdaughter's room? Eric will give you the key. I'm not allowed one. There he is. Oh, Eric. 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 Oh,
Arnold. Anytime. And... Mm. Yes, sir. You Eric? Collinson. Uh, what can I do for you? I'd uh, like the key to Miss Gabrielle's room. You the law? Why? You expecting some? Ah, the old lady's been threatening to yell cop. She decided to whisper instead. Oh, private thing. You catch on fast, lover boy. Okay, I'll uh, let you in her room. Come on. Mrs. Leggett says you drove Gabrielle to the station. She says that, does she? Isn't that what you told her? Mm, I'm not telling you what I told anyone. So it's yourself. After you. Mm-mm. What's eating you? Nothing at all. Just want some privacy. Oh, now, wait a minute. I'm responding. Go help Myrtle. Give me those keys. Oh, listen. You keep them. Well, hey, let me in. Go have your lights. Her room was, shall we say, untidy. The mirrored dressing table was chipped around the edges and arranged helter-skelter across it between two polo pony bookends was a mess of books. Three odd volumes of the Harvard five-foot shelf, a horse breeder's gazette, and a bunch of detective novels. I picked one up and opened it to the title page. It was called Morgue Fruit, and it was by Owen Fitzstephen, author of The Corpulent Cadaver, The Spindly Stiff, and The Kiss-Off. It was autographed to the author's great and good friend, the late Edgar Leggett. The signature looked familiar, but it didn't look like a lead. Neither did anything else in the room. I started to unlock the door with the key on the ring I grabbed away from Eric, and the light caught the smooth side of a Christopher medal. It was engraved for Eric Forever Gabby. When uh, Forever Eric went off duty that night, he went across town. The trail ended at a crummy, broken-down rooming house out in the film room. He let himself in with a key and climbed the stairs. I waited until he was out of sight. In uh, more time than it takes to tell, the door cracked open and a nose that could only belong to a landlady raised it out at me. She was uh, gumming a sensen. What do you want? They uh, get settled in all right? They ain't nobody settling in on me. Never touch me. You got me wrong, Mom. I uh, met the newlyweds. Did they uh, raise the rent money all right? Oh, them. Raise it and spend it. He's a Dick Smither. Dick Smithers. Shots up all day and throws the dead soldiers out the window. <laughs> and they call it a honeymoon. <laughs> Who are you? Uh, I'm her uh, ex-husband, darling. I uh, came to pay her the back alimony, I hope. Well, give it to me. I'll see she gets... Oh, no, you don't. No, no, don't you come pushing in here. Why? After hours. Don't allow callers in here after 10 o'clock. I'll rule. Shut up. Well, I don't. What's their room number? Now, give it to me or I'll shake it out of you, darling. 212. 212. And if you want for these new uppers, I'd let you try it. Oh, is that what those are? Uh, thank you, Grand Duchess Marie. Smart Alec. No wonder you can't hang on to a woman. It's all right. You stole her to drink. I did not. Alimony's still good for you. Western Union. All right, let me... Hey, I told you to stay away, and I'll beat it. Eric, what is it? Uh, look, Eric, I don't want any trouble, but I'm coming in. Over my dead body. Eric? Get back in the room, Gabby. Now, look, I, I won't let you hurt her, so... Now, so look, Collinson, don't, don't, don't make no, me don't do it. I don't want to. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Eric, Eric. What have you done to me? Nothing a bucket of cold water can't cure. Sit down. I want to talk to you. Who are you? Sam Spade. I'm a private detective. Your stepmother hired me to find you. Oh? You know why she wants to find me? Do you? She wants to kill me. She killed my father, now she'll kill me. Can you prove that? My father never had a day's illness in his life. He could drink three quarts of brandy in any evening. Do you believe a man like that could die of heart failure? Frankly, I could. Now she's starting to think kind of talk about me. 
Mr. Vail loves me to be insane. Do I seem crazy to you? No. A little nervous, maybe. This idea you have about your father's death. Talk some more, will you? All right. I'll tell you the whole thing. But I gotta have a drink first. Hey, I can't get the top off. Give me a hand, will you? Sure. Now, you need a corkscrew for this one. Yeah, I think there's one down there in the cupboard. I don't see one. Back in the corner. A little farther. There. No, there's nothing. Hey! I dreamed I was a character in a detective story. The title of the story was Morgue Fruit, and the author, a man named Fitz Stephen, was trying to figure out a way to turn me into a red herring before knocking off his number one suspect. I tried to tell him it's against the rules to make a detective a red herring, but he said it was a new kind of murder yarn, and it didn't matter anyway because there wasn't even a victim. That's what he thought. Makers of Wild Root Cream Oil are presenting the weekly Sunday adventure of Dashiell Hammett's famous private detective, Sam Spade. Now, here's important news on good grooming. If you want the well-groomed look that helps you get ahead socially and on the job, listen. Recently, thousands of people from coast to coast who bought Wild Root Cream Oil for the first time were asked, how does Wild Root Cream Oil compare with the hair tonic you previously used? The results were amazing. Better than four out of five who replied said they preferred Wild Root Cream Oil. Remember, non-alcoholic Wild Root Cream Oil contains lanolin. And here's the announcement we promised you. Now you can get Wild Root Cream Oil, America's leading hair tonic, in a generous new 25-cent size, on sale at all drug and toilet goods counters. It's also available in larger economy bottles and the handy new tube. Get Wild Root Cream Oil again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. By the way, smart girls use Wild Root Cream Oil, too, and mothers say it's grand for training children's hair. And now, back to the critical author, Caper. Tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. When I uh, came to, and it came the dawn, and I was still a character in a detective story, and I felt more like a red herring than I had in my dream. I had dragged myself across my own trail and wound up no place. My quarry had fled, leaving nothing behind but empty bottles with fingerprints on them. I lifted the few and hustled over to the Bureau of Identification. Half an hour later, I got the report. They were mine. All mine. I wondered what a detective novelist would make of that. I decided to find out. I had met Owen Fitzstephen several years back in uh, Seattle when I was digging dirt on a chain of fake mediums. He was plowing the same field for literary material, and we fooled forces. I got more out of the combination than he did since he knew the spook racket inside out. I cleaned up my job in a couple of weeks, and we parted friends. His San Francisco apartment was on the sixth floor of the St. Mark. He was standing at his door, holding out a lean hand to greet me when I got there. Well, you're looking fit, Sam. Little red in the face. That's yeah, the red herring I ate last night. How's the uh, literary grip go? Uh, you haven't been reading me? No. Where'd you get that funny idea? Oh, there was something in your tone, as in the voice of one who has bought an author for a couple of dollars. <laughs> I suppose you're still hounding the unfortunate evildoer. Yeah, that's how I happened to look you up. Uh, 
You autographed a book for Edgar Leggett. Oh, yes, yes. Mog fruit. Distressingly prophetic. Uh, what do you know about that family? Oh, what have they been up to now? How well you know the girl, uh, Gabrielle? Uh, quite well, since she's a duplicate of her father. She has brains, but there's something black in her. Something she doesn't want to think about but can't forget. She's a neurotic who keeps her body sensitive and ready. I don't know what for. While she drugs her mind with drink and lunatic notions. Yet she's cold and she's sane. If I had something I wanted to forget, I'd anesthetize my mind directly, leave my body stay strong and ready. I uh, hope you don't think any of this stuff means anything to me. Oh, yes. I remember you now. You were always like that. Tell me what's up while I try to find one-syllable words for you. You uh, know the fellow that drives for him? Mm. Eric? Mm-hmm. Well, he was released from Folsom in Leggett's custody when he was 18 years old. Murdered his father. Nice kid. What about him? Uh, Mrs. Leggett hired me to find Gabrielle. I found her with Eric in a rooming house out in the Fillmore. She begged me to save her from her stepmother's murderous schemes, and then she knocked me cold. Mm, well, that's trivial. Dull. I've been thinking of the Leggett family in terms of Dumas, and you bring me a piece of Jim Crackery out of O'Henry. While we're writing this, Gabrielle would kill her stepmother, or Duke Erickson's doing it for her. Or if it... No, that won't do. Not sufficient motive. Murder has to have a motive, you know. Why? She's uh, insane, isn't she? I wonder. Are you saying that carelessly, or do you really think she's off? Well, I don't know. She's uh, got a kind of a wild look about her. Her eyes shift from green to brown and back without ever settling on one color. Uh, how much have you turned up on her in your uh, snooping around, Owen? Are uh, you who make your living snooping, sneering at my curiosity about people and my attempts to satisfy them? No, we're different, Owen. I do mine with the object of putting people in jail, and I get paid for it, though not as much as I should. But I do mine with the object of putting people in books, and I get paid for it, though not as much as I should. Yeah, but what good does that do? Well, what good does putting them in jail do? Well, it relieves congestion. You put enough people in jail, and cities wouldn't have any traffic yeah. problems. That's fine. Well, then all you have to do is to wait till one of them kills the other and put the survivor in jail. It's simple. Yeah, but who's going to kill who? Perhaps they both have plans, both Gabrielle and her stepmother. Looks as if you'd have to guard both of them. I think I'll settle for my client. As far as Gabrielle's concerned, her husband ought to be able to watch out for her. Her what? Husband. She and Eric got married. <laughs> now, there you are. You didn't tell me anything about that. Lord knows how much else there is you haven't told me. Uh, pardon me. Don't go away. Telegram, sign here. Uh, thank you. Thank you, sir. Now, I wonder what... Uh, good Lord, this is positively corny. Listen to this, Wayne. I appeal to you as a friend of my dead husband. Come immediately, Sunset Hotel Quesada. Trouble. Danger. Do not communicate. Gabriel must not know. Signed, Gertrude Leggett. Spain. Yeah? Did you have this wire sent to me as a prank? I was just going to ask you if you sent it to yourself as a prank. Hmm. I have it. Hmm? The key to the whole thing. It's a red herring. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that Stephen would be able to hold out very long against his professional curiosity, and I didn't imagine he thought I would. I caught the next bus for Quesada. Quesada is a one-hotel town pasted on the rocky side of a young mountain that slopes into the Pacific Ocean some 80 miles from San Francisco. I got there at 11-something that night, stepped down from the bus and crossed the street to the Sunset Hotel. All right, all right, keep your shut up. Uh, Mrs. Leggett registered here? 
What's your name? Owen Fitzstephen. Oh, she left a message for you. Said uh, for you to wait right here and don't leave till she gets back. Yeah, she say where she was going? Oh, it's probably over visiting with her daughter and new son-in-law, new over to the cove. How do you get there? Well, you'll never be able to find it at night. Uh, unless you you went all the way around by the East Road. Yeah, Not uh, then, I'm sure, unless you knew the country. Well, how do you it's get good. there in the daytime? Well, uh, you go down the street. You take the fork on the ocean side and follow that up along the cliff. It's easily enough found in the daytime, but you you never never, never in the world. You, you yeah, okay, okay, right. heard it's, you the first time. So I waited until morning. Stupid me. I found the road out at the point, but it had never really been a road. The side of the ledge became steeper and steeper until the path was simply a narrow shelf on the face of the cliff. The cliff that sheared off 150 feet or more to ravel out into the ocean. A breeze from the general direction of China was pushing fog over the top of the cliff, making a noisy lather of seawater at the bottom. Rounding a corner where the cliff was steepest, I checked my cigarette over the edge and watched it spin downwards. And that's when I saw it. I had to go waist deep into the Pacific to lift the body. I got my hands under the armpits, found solid ground for my feet, and dragged it up beyond the high tide mark. It was Gertrude Leggett. Somebody came staggering down the beach to meet us. She dead? Yeah, Gabrielle, she's dead. Oh, oh the witch is dead. Hey, take me back to town, will you? Find a drink, huh? Sit down there. Sit down. <laughs> What's the big idea? Don't you know I'm sick? Somehow I don't think you're that sick. I think you could make some sense. Sense? That's a laugh. You don't know me. I've never been able to think clearly the way other people do. No matter what I try to think about, there's a fog that tries to get between me and it. You understand how horrible I can become going through life like Nuts. that? Nobody thinks clearly, no matter what they pretend. Thinking's a dizzy business. A matter of catching as many of those foggy glimpses as you can and fitting them together the best you can. Trouble with you is you've been enjoying your misery. You've been so busy trying to prove that you're nuts that you wonder you haven't really driven yourself nuts. How do you know I haven't? Because you're too anxious to admit it. All right, I'm saying if you want it that way. I'm just evil. There's something black inside me. What was that again? Something black. Everybody knows that about my family. My father, too. Who told you that? I always knew it. They say my real mother killed herself. But I know better. I know how to open the drawer where she keeps the gun. Every day, Gertrude lies on Mother's bed, and we play killing the witch. Yeah. And she comes in in the night and bends over my crib. And she's changed herself. So she looks like Mother instead of the witch. But I know better. And I hold up the gun with both hands. Very hard to pull with both hands. It's very hard to pull the trigger. But I must do it or the witch will eat me up. And then there's a big noise. And red all over. And I can't get out. I can't get out. <laughs> Listen to me. You were beginning to make some sense. I don't run away from it. Gertrude was lying on your mother's bed. That's your stepmother? Yeah. She, she was 
killed my nurse. She married father. Not so fast. How old were you when your mother died? Four. Four and a half. Did your father know about the game with the gun? No, I don't think so. Did anybody? Gertrude said I must never tell anyone. Because they'd send me away. And I never did. Not till I grew up. I was with Owen Fitzstephen. I had a lot to drink. I told him. After that, he began seeing Gertrude. And finally, my father died. But it didn't do her any good. Because Owen really loved me. Now, watch it. Now, let's get this straight. You'll have to straighten it out again later on with a doctor to help you. This is to help me. When you were a little child, Gertrude taught you that killing the, that killing the witch game to use you as a murder weapon against your mother. Then she filled you full of ideas of guilt and fear so you'd keep quiet about it. When you told the story to Owen, he blackmailed your stepmother into knocking off your father. That made you feel responsible for his death, too, so you ran away. Now, Gertrude said I killed her, too. You might, but I doubt it. Now, uh, try and remember. Was Owen up here tonight? I thought I heard his voice. But I hear voices sometimes. I'm hearing it again. Listen. Do you hear anything? I didn't hear anything but the wind and the beat of the surf at first. But when I did hear the voice, I sent Gabby for a doctor before I investigated. He was pretty badly mangled in the rocks. He'd fallen nearly as far as he'd pushed Gertrude, but was still alive. I made him as comfortable as I could, and finally he opened his eyes. Hello, Sam. You messed yourself up good. Yeah. No more rocks for me. Not unless you make Alcatraz. You know, I had half an idea when you came to see me in San Francisco that you were secretly nursing some exceptional idiotic theory. Thanks, Owen, but I never had any theory. Whole thing dropped into my lap. Don't be too sure of that. Understand at present, I admit nothing. Later on, if I'm forced to, the very number of my crimes will be to my advantage. On the theory that nobody but an lunatic could have committed so many. Well, there's not so many, only Gertrude, your co-author of the murder of the late Edgar Leggett. Nonsense. Crimes and crimes dating from the cradle. Even literature shall help me. Not your own books. Why not? And the critics agree that the spindly stiff bore all the marks of authorial degeneracy. Evidence, son, to save my sweet neck. And I shall wave my mangled body at them. A ruin whose crimes and high heaven have surely brought sufficient punishment upon me. Yeah, you'll probably make a go of it. Legally, you're entitled to beat the jump if ever anybody was. Illegally? You mean insane? <laughs> Tell me the truth, Sam. Am I? I think that's what they'll say. But that spoils everything. It's no fun if I'm really cracked. No fun at all. Period and a report. Goes to show, doesn't it? Well, there you go again, Abby. I mean, if anything like that happened in real life, you wouldn't believe it. You mean if anything like that happened in fiction? Oh, no. The author is never the guilty party. Well, this author was. But that's not fair. The author is never supposed to be guilty You're of You're right. Any... You're right, Abby. You shouldn't be even a suspect. Maybe a red herring, but... Type you... that up, Abby. Oh, all right, Sam. Anything else, Sam? Yeah, phone the drugstore and order some red herring. I mean, some aspirin. Aspirin. <laughs> 
More and more folks are turning to famous Wild Root Cream Oil every day. Wild Root Cream Oil gives you all you ever dreamed of in a hair tonic. It grooms your hair neatly and naturally the way you like it, the way other people like it. What's more, Wild Root Cream Oil relieves dryness and removes loose, ugly dandruff. So join the millions with handsome hair. Tonight, or first thing tomorrow, ask at your drug or toilet goods counter for Wild Root Cream Oil. Also, ask your barber for a professional application. If you've never tried it before, get the generous new 25-cent bottle just introduced. It's Wild Root Cream Oil's Get Acquainted size, and once you've made the acquaintance of Wild Root Cream Oil, you'll find you've made a lifelong friend. Come on in, Twinkle Well, here it is, Sam. And I like it even better than morgue food. You did. I mean, it's not so realistic. <laughs> I like a romantic type story myself. You Lots do. Of, of atmosphere and psychology and those. Oh, you've got to have those. You really should be a writer, Sam. <laughs> right, you think so? Of course, detective stories don't pay much. Oh, that's true. But if you write enough of them. <laughs> and look at all the material you've got. No good. Never do for fiction. But, Sam, there's already that radio series, The Adventures of You-Know-Who, Sunday Night. That's what I mean. I don't make a penny out of it. Well, it's your own fault. Sam, I don't want to seem critical, but... If you played your cards right, you could have owned a piece of that show. What? And follow Blondie? Go home, Effie. I think I will, Sam. Just curl up with a good book. All right. I wonder who killed who. Well, when you find out, don't let me know. Oh, you know you can't wait. No, I can. <laughs> good night, Sam. Good night, The Adventures of Sam Spade, that shall have its famous private detective, are produced and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade is played by Howard Duff. Marine Tuttle is Effie. The Adventures of Sam Spade are written for radio by Bob Tallman and Gil Dowd. Musical direction is by Lud Gluskin, with score composed by Rene Garrigan. Join us again next Sunday when author Dashiell Hammett and producer William Spear join forces for another adventure with Sam Spade brought to you by Wild Root Cream Oil. Again and again, the choice of men who put good grooming first. This is Dick Joy reminding you to... Get Wild Root Cream Oil, Charlie. It keeps your hair in trim. You see, it's non-alcoholic, Charlie. It's made with soothing lanolin. You better get Wild Root Cream Oil, Charlie. Start using it today. You'll find that you will have a tough time, Charlie. Keeping all the gals away. Hiya, Baldy. Get Wild Root right away. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.